Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed your Labor Day weekend. As always, thank you so much for listening to us. We enjoy that you're here every week. And also, be sure to check out our website at www.shumcokc.org. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. Wherever and whenever you are, I'm glad that you're here to worship with us today. I'm pretty excited this morning uh, for a couple of reasons. Not least among them is that, as you know, I have been training since August of 2019 to prepare to run in the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. Um, And so I had wanted to actually run in the 2020 marathon. Megan came to me, my uh, youngest daughter, in August of 2019, and she said, hey, Dad, I would love it if we could run in the marathon together. At the time, she was in her senior year of high school here at Westmore in Oklahoma City. And so we said, yeah, sure, we should do that. I had run, you know, off and on for a a, a large portion of my adult life, but I hadn't been running very much for quite some time. And so I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we began in the middle of an August afternoon. It was like 98 degrees outside. We went up to the station and more, and we ran a mile, and we both barely survived it. But over time, we added uh, miles, and we added days of the week. We started running a couple of days a week, then three days a week, and four days a week, and five days a week. And then before I knew it, we were running four miles, and five miles, six miles, eight miles. And so coming up to the marathon this year, Um, I kind of made it a practice to run somewhere between 10 and 12 miles every morning, five days a week. Uh, This last week, on Wednesday, I decided to see if I could make it through a half marathon. And sure enough, ran 14 miles that day. Half marathon is 13.1. I ran 14 miles, survived it okay. And so this morning, I'm out participating in the Oklahoma City Marathon, running the half marathon. Uh, I sent in a video this morning that I asked Devin to be ready to share with you just so that you would know that I'm excited and I'm so grateful for all of the support that I've received from you as I've been preparing to do this. So uh, here's the greeting from out at the race this morning. Hey, good morning, Southern Hills family. It is bright and early on Sunday morning. Usually at this time on a Sunday, I'm taking a shower, getting myself ready for a fun Sunday morning at Southern Hills. But today, I'm getting ready to run in the Oklahoma City Marathon. And so I just wanna say thank you so much for uh, the prayers and the support. It has meant the world to me. Um, Megan and Kate and Chris are all gonna come out uh, today to cheer me on. They're gonna be at the stop. So my, my bib number, you can see it on me, is 12229, so 12229. If you download the Oklahoma City Marathon app this morning, you can find, you just put my number in there and you can find out where I am on the course and how I'm doing. So we're gonna post some pictures later, uh, wherever and whenever you are, I'm upholding you in prayer and um, I'm glad to be worshiping with you even at a distance. God bless you guys, I'll see you soon. So again, wherever and whenever you are, I'm glad to be worshiping with you uh, today. I can't wait to be back with you in person this next week. And I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to share a little bit of time with you talking about something that I'm excited about talking about because the passage that we're going to be studying today gives us an opportunity to answer some important questions. Now, before we do that, the other thing that I want to share with you is that our latest edition of the Parent Connect is out. So make sure you get a copy of that. You can get it over uh, at the Welcome Center or at the Children's Ministry check-in station in the other building across the way. Or if you'd rather have that emailed to you, you can just let us know. We'd be glad to get that out and emailed to you as well. I'm super excited about some of the cool things that are going on in the children's ministry. Also, you may be thinking to yourself, today is Communion Sunday. In fact, the first Sunday in October 
is normally celebrated as World Communion Sunday, where churches of varying denominations or no denominational affiliation often share in communion on the same day together around the world. So we're going to be doing that today. Uh, one of the things you will have heard me say before, as we've lived into ministry that's a little bit hybrid. We have an on-campus presence. We have an online presence. And so as we've been living into that, one of the things you've heard me say is that God is with you wherever you are. You do not need to be present with us here in order to participate in Holy Communion today. So if you're participating on a virtual campus, I would encourage you to get some bread and some grape juice. That's probably one of the more traditional sets of elements you could get. If you can't have that, find something that is close, and God is going to consecrate and bless that as well. So when we get to that time, I'm going to lead you through the communion liturgy together this morning so that we can participate in Holy Communion together. All right, so today we begin a new journey. We spent the last five weeks studying the book of James, a letter written by the brother of Jesus. And we had an opportunity uh, to talk about several important topics as we went through that letter together, ending with a conversation about prayer last week. Today we're going to start a new journey, and for the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at the book of Job. Job is an Old Testament book. So whether uh, this is your first time participating in a church or you grew up in the church, you may have heard about Job. One of the reasons you may have heard about it is because Job is actually the oldest or believed to be the oldest story recorded in the scripture. Much of what uh, you find in the early part of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament was passed on by word of mouth for some time before it was recorded down in the form that you would find it in today. And Job is considered to be one of or among the oldest stories in the Holy Scriptures. And so we're going to talk about that. But you also know about Job because you know about all of the trials and tribulations that Job goes through. And you know about the story at the beginning in which Satan goes into the heavenly court to have a conversation with God. So today we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about a couple of very important things. You may even learn some things today that you didn't know about the origination of some of your beliefs about Satan and about hell and about heaven and about what those words and names mean and about how our understandings or our popular beliefs about them have changed over time. So I'm excited about uh, talking with you about that today. Uh, if you would, pray with me. Gracious and giving God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today, that as we seek to spend a little bit of time learning more about who you are and who you're calling us to be, that you might guide our hearts and guide our thoughts and guide our conversations so that as a result of our time together, we might know you more intimately, that we might embrace your love more fully and share your love in a way that matters, as we ask in your holy name. Amen. All right. Let's do this. One of my most formative moments happened when I was a child living in suburban Kansas City. I tell this story from time to time because it was a profound moment for me that helped me to understand not only the nature of love, but also the nature of fear. I remember um, once sitting out on the back patio, we had a screened-in porch on our back patio talking with my father. My father's a retired United Methodist minister. 
and he liked to sit down and talk with me. He would teach me things, and I didn't know I was learning things, right? And I remember sitting on that back patio when my dad started talking to me about motivations. He started talking about uh, the motivations like love and fear. I remember listening to him say, Matt, love and fear are two of the primary human motivators, but they're very different. One of my most formative moments happened. At the same time that I had an opportunity to understand for myself the difference between love and fear. We lived on a very busy street in suburban Kansas City, and I had gone across the street after school one day. I was in the second grade, and my best friend's name was Greg, and he lived right down the street. He had a basketball goal. I, wouldn't, I would get one eventually at my house, but I didn't have one at that time. And so one of our favorite things to do was uh, sit out in his driveway and shoot baskets on his basketball goal. So I would go over there, uh, walk down the street. My parents would uh, watch me cross the street, and I'd shoot baskets until they told me I had to come back for dinner, right? Usually as close to dinner as I could possibly get. So it was just one of those days. Uh, it was a fall afternoon. I had come home from school, didn't have much homework, and so I asked if I could go down to Greg's house and shoot some baskets, and they said, sure you can. So I crossed the street, walked down uh, to where Greg's house was, knocked on the door. Greg was there. He came outside, got a couple of basketballs, and we shot baskets for just a couple of hours. It was a great time, but it, it came to be the time for me to go back home, and so I started walking back up the sidewalk toward the house that was directly across the street from my house, which was my preferred place to cross the street. Now, I've already told you that this was a really busy street. I don't know where you are. You may be anywhere in the U.S. or around the world. And so if you're from Kansas City, you might remember Roe Avenue, which is the where my house was when I was growing up, and how busy a street it was, at least back then. I, uh, I've been to Kansas City as recently as a couple of years ago, and I remember thinking that that street was still pretty busy. When I was a kid, it was extremely busy, right? If you're here in the Oklahoma City metro, think something like, I don't know, Penn Avenue or Western. It was that busy. And our, my house was on the opposite side of the street from where I was. And so I'm walking up there, and I know how to cross the street because I've grown up in a major suburban area, part of a metro. And so I know how to cross the street. I'm walking up there, looking at the cars already, waiting for a break in traffic. And while I'm walking up, I just so happen to hear the dog that lives behind the fence attached to the house that's across the street from mine start to bark. That dog barked every single time I walked in front of the house. I never got a chance to see it because there was a privacy fence there, but the bark sounded incredibly ferocious. Now, I know that barks can be misleading. I had a basset hound that was incredibly nearsighted, but when she barked, she sounded like a, a tyrannosaur. She sounded so incredibly intimidating. So I remember listening to this, didn't know what kind of dog was behind that fence, and it was barking again just like it always did. But as I walked up to that driveway, I just so happened to catch its snout poking out from between the, the place where the gate connected to the fence. And I thought, that's kind of weird. He was barking, and, and then I saw more of his head. And then all of a sudden, as if in slow motion, that dog made it all the way through that crack between the gate and the fence. And sure enough, I was sitting there watching as a Rottweiler was running toward me, barking what's in what seemed to me to be an incredibly ferocious way. I was terrified. And I bolted straight into the street. So badly did I want to get away from that dog. I didn't care where I ran. I just knew where I didn't 
want to be, ran straight into the street. I remember as I ran into the street thinking, this is odd. Because I saw, as I ran into the street, I saw a car coming at me, and I saw that car, or heard the car honk, and so I closed my eyes expecting to get hit by the car that's driving down Roe Avenue. And sure enough, I feel something, and I end up in the air. And I remember being in the air with my eyes closed, thinking to myself, man, I thought this would hurt worse. And then I opened my eyes and found myself securely wrapped up in the arms of my father. As it turned out, he had watched the entire scene unfolding from our house across the street. He watched as I approached where I would cross. He watched as the dog and the home behind us got out of the fence. He watched as the dog ran toward me. And by the time any of that happened, the minute the dog got outside of the gate, my dad was already running towards the street. Now thankfully, you know, the memories of a second grader can change over time. As I've thought back on that over the years, the dog has gotten bigger and more ferocious. The car was moving faster. As it turned out, the, car had, the driver of the car had watched the whole thing unfold as well and had stopped their car. By that point, my dad was already in the street, had already picked me up and was carrying me across the street and went over to talk to the dog as well, who really had no intention of doing anything other than finding someone to play with. The story of Job begins with a question. And it's an easy question to miss. Because the story of Job is racked with trial and tribulation. It begins with a scene in the heavenly court. If you have a, a common English version of the Bible, which is the version that we use here, then what you're finding is a scene that unfolds wherein the, well, your common English Bible will say the adversary, right? Uh, if you have another translation, it's going to say Satan comes in to take audience in the heavenly court. And so you'll read through that whole scene as it unfolds, just like we did this morning. And then you'll, you'll enter into the trials and the tribulations that Job suffers, just so that presumably the heavenly court or the adversary or Satan can be convinced that Job is doing things for the right reason. And it's in that that you miss the question that is at the heart of the entire story. And the question is this. Why are you devoted to God? All throughout his teaching, Jesus repeatedly stresses the idea. You see this intently in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7, which often comprise the moral and ethical teachings of Christ. Time and again, you see an emphasis in the teachings of Christ on intention and motivation. Why you do what you do, Christ teaches, matters as much as what you do. Why you're doing what you're doing matters often more than the action that you take. Paul reiterates that later 
when he's trying to explain uh, how it is that we're supposed to understand what the right thing is to do. There's, there's a couple of factions that develop in early Christianity. One of them says that they, people shouldn't eat meat, and the other one says people should eat meat. And Paul gives them a teaching about that and about whether or not specific days of the week are holy. And the teaching is the same thing, and it's the same thing that Christ teaches. Paul says to them, it's not the action that matters, it's why you're engaging in it that matters. And here's how he says it. He says, if you are someone who believes that eating meat is the best way that you can honor God, and and Paul said, I'm in that category. That represents a change from tradition, where it would normally, uh, uh, as part of their tradition, not have been okay to eat the kind of meat that they were talking about. Paul said, I don't have a problem with this anymore. I think it's fine to do, which is an indication that sometimes the things that we hold as standards change when the Holy Spirit begins to work. Paul says it's not what you do, it's why you're doing it. If He says if you think that eating meat is the best way you can honor God, then eat meat. And if you think that not eating meat is the best way to honor God, then don't eat meat. And on the one hand, he says, if you think it's okay to eat meat and somebody else doesn't, I'm paraphrasing, he says don't be a jerk and just eat meat around them for the sake of offending them. But then he says after that, also simultaneously don't let someone else tell you to do something differently than the way that you believe is best to honor God. It's not what you do, Paul says. It's why you do it. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, what you, why you do what you do matters as much or more than what you do. And so at the beginning of Job, we find a question that comes out of the dialogue in the heavenly courtroom. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the question is this, why are you devoted to God? Would you be devoted to God if you were not afraid of something or if you were not getting something out of it? So there's a scene in the heavenly courtroom that unfolds. The the version of the scriptures that we have talks about how the, the divine beings were called together to assemble in this version of the heavenly court. And one of them comes as well called the advocate. A couple of things you may not know, right? Um, So the word Satan is probably a word that you've been mispronouncing for quite some time. Now, I'm not going to say it uh, the way that it's supposed to be pronounced over and over again because our vernacular has changed and we all say Satan, but it's actually pronounced Satan. The word Satan is pronounced Satan. In Hebrew, it would be Hasatan, right? Um, And there's always a definite article in front of it because it's a title. It's not a name. So when you see that translated in your Bible, in the common English version, for instance, you're going to see um, the adversary there, and the is going to be in front of it, right? And if you have uh, Satan or Satan, it should have the definite article in front of it, the, so that what you see is the Satan or the Satan. Why? Because it's a title. It means adversary or accuser or prosecutor. Satan had a role in the heavenly court. Much, in fact, of what you believe about Satan probably comes more from popular mythology than it does from the Bible at all. In fact, much of what we believe about Satan and about hell comes from Dante's Inferno, or the divine comedy written in the 14th century. Dante Alighieri wrote that as a fanciful account of what it would be like to go through the levels of heaven or the levels of hell, right? And so as you, when you go through that and you go all the way to the bottom, the, the, the worst level of hell, you see this depiction of Satan as, as this grotesque being, whereas the history of the church and what little we find in the scriptures about it seems to indicate the opposite. That Satan, or the one who was called Lucifer, was beautiful. 
and had a high-ranking position in the heavenly court. And that high-ranking position was as the accuser. If you think about that as a courtroom, in fact, much of, if you've ever thought of Christianity as teaching that someday you're going to be judged for the things that you do, this is the origination of that belief in our faith going all the way back into our Jewish roots. There's a depiction of a heavenly courtroom. In fact, the good news of God in Jesus Christ that Christ comes to share is that, in fact, you are not going to be put on trial. But I'll talk about that in a minute. Satan has a role, and that role is as the prosecutor. And so God says to Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been wandering to and fro on the earth. And he says, oh, you must have seen my servant Job. Now you're going to miss the reference there, because what Satan is doing is fulfilling his obligation to the heavenly court, which is to be the one who assesses the actions and behaviors and intentions of humans and then accuses them before the heavenly court or before the throne of God. These people, this person is not doing something the right way, or maybe more importantly, we're going to see that here, is not doing something for the right reasons. Satan is fulfilling his role and responsibility in the heavenly court. So you may be thinking to yourself, I thought Satan and the angels who would become demons fell. In fact, doesn't Jesus say, I was there and I saw you fall like lightning from the sky? You may be thinking to yourself, that I heard somebody say at one point that uh, Satan fell because Satan tried to take on the role of God, right? That's right. That's the history of the church. Some of that is reflected in Scripture. Some of that's reflected in the Apocrypha. Some of that is reflected in extra-canonical lit literature, which are uh, works written around the same time that were not put in the Bible. But essentially, yeah, you're getting the teaching of the church there. So one of the questions you ought to be asking is, what does it mean when I hear something like uh, Satan fell because Satan tried to take upon uh, Satan's self the authority of God. Satan tried to be God. Here's the short version. Satan is the heavenly prosecutor who wants people to be held accountable for the wrong that they've done. He believes they need to be punished. God shows mercy and Satan doesn't like that. And in doing so, Satan contradicts God's judgment. Believing that he knew better than God what the fate of people should be. Mercy, as we just learned in the book of James that we've been studying for the last five weeks, overrules judgment. Jesus will say in Matthew that you, if you would just understand what I mean when I say that I require mercy and not sacrifice. With regard to sacrifice, think something akin to judgment. If you just knew what I meant when I said I require mercy, not sacrifice, you'd stop condemning innocent people. That kind of behavior dates all the way back to the beginning with the problem that Satan had with God. Here is Satan fulfilling his role in the heavenly court. God says, you must have seen my servant Job. And he says, yes, I did. But you know what? I think the only, paraphrasing, Satan says as an acute, in his official role, accusing this human of something that he believes the human is doing wrong, he says, I bet that if you, if, if uh, Job were not so very blessed, he wouldn't be so devoted to you, implying that the source of Job's devotion is his blessing, that he is devoted to God because he has been blessed, so that he will be further blessed. Satan is calling into a question, not the actions of Job, but his motivations. And so this drama ensues. 
wherein those things are taken away from Job. And we're going to work our way through that over the course of the next few weeks. But today we would be remiss if we didn't take a look at the question that is posed here. The question that is at the heart of everything that Job is about to endure and one of the lessons of this story. The question that's being asked is, why is Job devoted to God? The question for you and I is, why are we devoted to God? Because as Jesus so frequently taught, why you do what you do matters. Here's one of the reasons why. Some of the motivations potentially at play here in this dialogue are fear and selfishness and love. Fear is a very particular kind of motivator. It's one of the strongest of human motivators. But it's also a very particular kind of human motivator because it motivates in a very specific way. Fear will cause you to run away from something that you are afraid of. Whether it's a a place you're afraid of being, or an action that you're afraid of taking, or a, a consequence that you're afraid of enduring, fear is a motivator that causes you to run away from something. And much like my experience on that day crossing the street, the problem with fear as a motivator is that fear is focused upon what you're running from, not what you're running towards. Fear is focused as a motivator on getting you away from something. I don't want to be here. I don't want to experience this. I don't want to go through that. And so you bolt away from that. Because the point of fear is to get you away from something, not draw you toward something else. That's important for us. Because a really long time ago, ministers, this would begin in earnest around the same time that Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, is written. Ministers figure out a couple of things. One of them is that fear is a useful motivator. If I can make you afraid of avoiding something like hell or eternal damnation or eternal punishment, then I can get you so so afraid will you be of avoiding that that I can get you to take actions as a result of being afraid of avoiding that. And those actions are not going to move you towards something, they're going to move you away from something. They also realized that there was a bit of a theatrical element to the way in which those stories were told, and that brought people into their churches. So if you've heard about hellfire and brimstone preaching, it has that kind of purpose to it. There are plenty of Christians alive today who would love for you to hear a message that you're going to be tormented forever in hell because of things that you've done wrong. That's a very specific kind of motivator. And the problem with it is it is not the the chosen motivator of Christ. In fact, in this story, what you see is that it is the chosen motivating practice of Satan. Selfishness is another powerful motivating force. Selfishness is a particular kind of motivator as well because selfishness is a kind of motivator that will cause you to use or abuse someone else or a relationship with someone else for the sake of your own gain. To use a relationship, 
to abuse another person so that you can gain from it. And in that sense, the person and the relationship you have with them become a means to an end. The question here, the question that evolves in this first passage that we're studying in Job is simple. Why are you devoted to God? It's a question that's directed at followers of God, or today we would say followers of Jesus Christ, because when this was written, uh, the people who, were, who would have been reading this would have been adherents or devotees of God. Today, uh, in the church, we would take a look at the same kinds of people who profess to follow Christ. It's a message for us. Why are you devoted? Not are you devoted. Why are you devoted? Are you devoted because you're afraid of something? Because at some point, somebody convinced you that if you didn't do certain things, you would be tormented forever. One of the things I talk about, this is going to come up on my social media platform soon, is that to people who are not already Christian, the good news of God and Jesus Christ often does not come across as good news. Christians are taught to teach that. That Christ died to save you from your sins so that you don't have to spend a life in eternal torment and punishment. You can spend your eternity together with God. And in fact, that message is directly related to what happens here. Jesus comes to say, yeah, the good news is that in fact, because of what God has done, and more appropriately, because of who God is, you're not going to be put on trial. That's the good news of God and Jesus Christ. That's the message of the cross. But you may have been taught at one point that, oh, I don't know, you had to say certain things, show up to, to church a certain number of times. There are denominations that profess, believe, and practice that if you miss church on Sunday and don't confess that in an appropriate way, that that's a sin that will cause you to be damned to hell. There are so many variations of those kinds of belief, uh, beliefs across the uh, and, uh, the, excuse me, the width and the breadth of the Christian world, that if you have not encountered a fear-based theology of some kind, I would be surprised. Or, maybe without even realizing it, your relationship with God became a means to an end. Today we call this something like the prosperity gospel. If I do the right things, if I profess the right things and do the right things and believe the right things, then I will be blessed as a result. We call that a prosperity gospel today. It has a name now, but it's really just selfishness motivating your entrance into relationship. In that sense, for me, God becomes a means to an end. I'm going to be, in, be devoted or be in relationship with God or pursue God because I want to be blessed or have the things or get to a place question that is asked in the first part of Job is a powerful one. Because there is a motivator that leads to life instead of death. And it's exactly what Jesus came to teach about and the apostles picked up the mantle of after the resurrection and the ascension and began to teach in earnest themselves. And it's this. God does not want you to come into relationship or try to run into relationship with God because you're afraid of something. God does not want you to be in relationship with God so that you can use God as a means to an end. God's also not that foolish. People will say this to you. Oh, but it doesn't matter how you get into relationship with God because once you get there, God is going to fill in the blank. 
And so those are the people who want to use fear and intimidation to get you to pursue a relationship with God. The problem is that while God is capable of doing all the things that God wants to do, and while God can heal you from what in that sense caused you to to move toward a relationship with God by moving away from something else, there are two things that are important to know. And one is you could just as easily have run anywhere else out of fear instead of to God. And the other is when you get there, presuming you're not still motivated by fear then there's healing work that has to be done that wasn't ever necessary to begin with. In fact, that same theology of fear is and has been driving more people away from the body of Christ than toward it. So what's the message? The message that that is... I think profoundly a part of this passage is exactly what Christ came to teach. That there's an alternative. And that alternative is love. It was fear that found me shooting into the street that day. I just knew where I didn't want to be. And I bolted away from it. And where I bolted, could I have bolted another direction? Sure I could have. In this instance, I bolted in the worst possible direction I could bolt because I wasn't thinking about where to go. I was thinking about where to get away from. Fear is that kind of a motivator. But in that same moment, while I was motivated by fear, my father was motivated by love. He ran straight toward where he knew he needed to be. He wasn't running from something. He was running towards something. Whether it's your relationship with God or anything else, and you need to listen to this, If you're finding that you're not, I don't know, growing in the ways you want to grow, achieving the things in life you want to achieve, becoming the person you want to be, learning the things you want to learn, it is entirely possible that fear is a primary motivator in your life. What does that mean? It means that in your relationship with God and other places, if fear is a primary motivator for you, you're more concerned about what you're avoiding than what you're moving towards. Jesus says, choose love. John 13, 35. Jesus does not say, they're going to know that you're my disciples because of how effectively you intimidate them through fear. Jesus does not say, they're going to know that you're my disciples because of how effectively you hold other people to some kind of a moral standard that came from whatever culture taught you that fear was an important and powerful motivator. What Jesus says in John 13, 35 is, they're going to know that you are my disciples because of the way that you love people. Love other people in exactly the same way that I have loved you. I've told you about this. My next question when I read that is, oh my goodness. Love is the motivation that leads to life. Jesus says that over and over again. So how does Jesus love? In my study, I believe Jesus loves proactively, sacrificially, and unconditionally. When you are motivated by the love of Christ, then the love of Christ is drawing you toward life, not away from fear. You may end up Finding your, listen to this, you may find yourself physically in exactly the same place, hence the story of Job. It's not his action that is in question. I found myself in exactly the same place that my father found himself in on that day. 
but I was there in danger because of fear. My father was there for redemption because of love. Two, two of us in the same place for very different reasons with a very different outcome. When you are motivated by love, and this is directly related to the teachings of Christ, when you are motivated by love, you find yourself moving, running, being drawn toward something, and that something is life and that more abundantly so. Why are you devoted to God? Maybe. Maybe it's time to take a look together with God at not only what you believe, but why you believe it. At not only what you do, but why you do it. And if what you find is that in many of the actions of your life and or in your relationship with God, you begin to be concerned that maybe you're motivated by something other than love. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe you've fallen prey to a teaching that says that if you do all the right things, God will bless you. Or maybe it's fear. Maybe you were constantly taught to be afraid of God and at the same time told that you should be happy because you don't have to be tormented. Maybe it's time to look at not only what you believe, but why. And if you find that you're motivated in many actions or areas of your life by fear or by selfishness, the teachings of Christ say there's a better way. There's a healthier way. If you've heard me say this before, that you're sitting in that place, those are two ethics that come from a broken world. So if you've been thinking to yourself, there has to be something better than this. I don't want to be afraid all the time. I certainly don't want to use other people to my own advantage there has to be something better than this. I don't like being in a world where people are using other people to get things that they want, where people are abusing humans in relationships so they can have something they want. I don't like living in a world where I feel like I'm constantly having to be afraid and running away from something. The motivation of fear produces anxiety. The motivation of love produces peace and that, that passes all understanding. When you are sitting there thinking to yourself, there's got to be a better way, the teachings of Christ and the draw of the Holy Spirit are both saying there is and that way is love. For those of us who profess to follow Christ, this is a message and an opportunity to reflect. Maybe in the teachings of Christ, there's a healthier way, a way to move forward, a way to get to know God better, a way to live life and that more abundantly so, a way that is healthier than what I might have been taught by people who were intentionally or unintentionally confused. Go to the place where you pray. And if that's been your experience, if you've been running in fear, I want you to know that the good news of God and Jesus Christ is that you are dearly loved. Proactively, sacrificially, and unconditionally. That you are dearly loved loved by a God who wants to draw you into the fullness of life so that you can experience peace and with that peace, joy. 
so that you can find yourself moving towards something instead of running in fear away from something. So that you can be intentional together with God about where you're going instead of constantly looking back at what you're trying to run away from. And in the midst of that, the good news of God and Jesus Christ is that if that's been your experience of life and relationship with God, in that very same love, there is healing. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for the opportunity to move toward you in love, to counteract a teaching that is as young in the church as it is ineffective. Help us to be a people, God, who are willing to be drawn toward you in loving relationship, to be transformed by a love that is proactive and sacrificial and unconditional so that we can share that very same love as we're being transformed and healed so that we can share that very same love in a transformative and healing way. Help us to begin to take steps toward instead of running away from what we're afraid of. This we ask in your name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to grab your communion elements and have them in your hands. And if you're participating uh, online, whether you're on campus or online, if you would have those there with you. Let's take just a moment and celebrate the sacrament of Holy, Holy Communion together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. You have made from one every nation and people to live on all the face of the earth. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering death and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. He commissioned us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. And today his family in all the world is joining at his holy table. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. If you would, take your elements and just hold them up. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. 
Renew our communion with your church throughout the world and strengthen it in every nation and among every people to witness faithfully in your name. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. Take, eat, and drink and know that you are redeemed. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Help us to follow where you lead and to be transformed by your love that we might join in what you're doing as you give yourself to the world. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Be sure to tune in next week.